Now that I've addressed the central question of marriage, divorce and remarriage, a thing that has been um, very uh, a neglected subject in theological circles, in church circles, um, reduced merely to a quotations or, or a, a series of quotations of scripture such as God hates divorce. Well, that's true, God hates divorce. Uh, and or um, just the notion that uh, you cannot remarry if you, um, once you've been married and divorced, uh, or the issues of natural law that we brought up and addressed. So we addressed the, the spectrum of issues that are raised, but only raised partially. Um, we saw that it is, it is the failure of the church to judge in matters that has created this dilemma. That we don't judge the unbelievers, but we do judge those who say they are believers, but who, believe, who, who behave in a manner inconsistent with the doctrine of Christ. And in that regard, when we, when we judge the matter, there are two possibilities. One, we may encourage the offending party, the one who does not live according to the standards of Christ. We may encourage them to repent, to return uh, to submission to the authority of Christ, and, and bring them under the discipline of a father who can train them up in the things of God. Frankly, the matter fails in the beginning. It fails because we do not have a model of fathers and sons. We have a model of institutions and people fall through the cracks in institutions because nobody is actually responsible for them. Nobody grows to maturity, nobody's accountable. Uh, in, in, I mean, the, the, the most shameful expression of this is the megachurch, um, where one man, in the hope of having a cast of thousands listening to him on Sundays uh, or whenever he preaches, stands at the distance on a stage and preaches to an audience that is essentially sitting in the dark. He has no idea who they are and they don't know him either. They know a message that he brings and he may be a popular figure, but then they default to having, quote, staff to raise the people up. Well, staff has no relationship to them or at least whatever relationship is secondary to them, their position as a staff member and usually that means primary loyalty to the preacher. So whatever the preacher is saying from a distance is what they try to bring nearer to the people in arrangements such as home meetings and so on. It's all discussion around what the preacher says. And they, they, at the end of the day, they don't know where the people are spiritually they have no comprehension of the conflicts that people are dealing with. So 
when marital conflicts being a very common conflict, when that erupts, it's all new to them. This structure is not one for the growth of the people. This is a structure for the maintaining of control from a distance. That's institutional Christianity, whether it's the Pope and his church or the local Pope and his church. That's the way it is. So they've choreographed the scriptures uh, to fit that model. And therefore, the quotation of scripture serves the purpose of simply keeping people together when the relationships, when marital relationships being the subject we're talking about, when they've altogether collapsed. And at the end of it, to simply throw a scripture at someone and say, God hates divorce, it's true that he does, but this is entirely disingenuous. The thing that I want to hammer away at uh, and keep hammering uh, is this point. The kingdom of God is based on relationships, real relationships. Institutional relationships are not real relationships. It's grouping people together under a set of accepted norms and herding them in a fashion in which you'd herd sheep. At no point can you say that a father-son relationship exists, not in the reality of father and son. I mean, we, we have examples even among unbelievers of father and son. There is an, there's an intimate connection between the father and the son and it serves that purpose. There ought to be intimate connections between uh, uh, husbands and wives that model Christ and the church. But But I'm going back over the ground that I've already covered and I do want to go on with this. And I want to go on by picking up from where Jesus, uh, we had read in Matthew 19, um, where the, the issue was posited to Jesus by the Pharisees. When they say, they said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Jesus said, have you not read he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said to them, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God, God has joined together, marital relationship between believers, recognizes at the core a joining by God with the intent that the two become one flesh. Why? Because this is a picture of Christ and the church. Now that's what I want to explore today, or rather in these next set of of, of messages. And so when Moses gave them a writing of divorce, Jesus said to them, Moses did so because of the hardness of your heart, permitted you to divorce your wives. 
but from the beginning it was not so. So twice the reference is made to he who made them at the beginning, that's verse 4, and again uh, um, verse uh, uh, 8, hardness of heart, but from the beginning it was not so. So what was the intention at the beginning? Well, he, he explains it. He said, he made them to be male and female and designated them to be one flesh. One flesh. So that's what I want to pick up on. What was the intention? What was behind making them one flesh? Now, as we go back to the book of Genesis where this is referenced initially, he made them male and female. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, in Ephesians, where Paul picks up exactly that language, here it is in Ephesians uh, chapter 5. I want to go back now, I want us to go to Ephesians 5 and to look reading from verse 21. So Ephesians 5, 21, um, we, we, want to, we want to go back and, and pick this whole matter up and connect it back to the Genesis 3 account. All right, so Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 21. I start at verse 21 um, because it says something that frames the whole thing. Submit to one another in fear of the Lord. Now, that new, these newer translations miss the point entirely. In the Greek, it does not say submit to one another. Something is missing from that statement. The statement in the Greek is submit yourselves one to another. This is the slay of hand of translations that where the translators do not themselves understand what is being said. So in their, in their rush to make these things, to make scripture, uh, to modernize scripture, to go with contemporary perspectives, they inaccurately present the scriptures. It does not say in the Greek, submit to one another, in the fear of the Lord. It says, submitting yourselves one to another. So there's one who is supposed to submit to another. It is not mutual submission. You don't submit to me and I submit to you. There is a divine order in which one is in authority and another is under authority. And it's not the other way around. I warrant you, this is the truth and this, this is one of the numerous ways in which secular error has come into 
the scripture has been introduced to the scriptures, blinding the minds of people. Now, what is the appeal of translating the scriptures, submit to one another? What is that appeal? That appeal is to the spirit of equality. One is equal to another, so we should submit one to another. That's the argument. Now keep in mind, the model that we're exploring, beginning with the subject matter of marriage, divorce and remarriage, the model we are exploring is what was in the beginning. In the beginning it was not so. So we're looking at in the beginning. When we're asking the question in the beginning, we're asking the question of original intent. This is not what man thought as long as man has been thinking and commenting on Scripture. No, it's not that at all. It's what was in the mind of God when He made them to be one flesh and designated them male and female and the man said, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. Now, Paul describes this in Ephesians where we are in chapter 3 as a profound mystery. Here's what he says. Quoting the very scripture from Genesis 3, he says, We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones, in the way that a wife was taken out of the flesh of and in fact specifically one of the bones of the man, when God took the rib out of Adam from which He made Eve. And here Paul goes right back to that, that reference in Genesis 3 and says, No man ever hates his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. So it's Christ and the church in typology. For we are members of His body. Do you get it? Adam said when Eve was presented to him for the first time when he saw her after he, awake, he was awakened out of the deep sleep in which he was, he looked on the woman and said, this is now flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Flesh of flesh, bone of my bone. Here you have the same reference identically, but it's upgraded to the original intent. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. Read it for yourself. It's Ephesians 5.30. Now it goes on and he directly quotes Genesis 3. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, now the next line is critical. Verse 32, this is 
a profound mystery. So when God made the woman out of the man, taking the rib out of Adam and making Eve, bringing Eve to Adam and Adam's exclamation, this is flesh of my flesh, this is bone of my bones, this is of my body. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That was a foundational mystery to be revealed. Now here is where that mystery is revealed, the expression of why God made them uh, to be one flesh according to Jesus when He was talking about marriage and giving an answer to unbelieving Pharisees. This is a profound mystery but I am speaking concerning Christ and the church. That was what was in the beginning. In the beginning it was not so, they were not meant to be separated, they were meant to be viewed as one because they were invested with the custody of a mystery. So in creation, the husband and wife were always meant to be a typology of Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So we're working against a mystery, we're working against the background, the background frames what marriage was supposed to be and what was the original intent of God from the beginning, that which was from the beginning. Now, when it existed in the beginning, it existed as an unrevealed truth, holding the mystery in, in confidence until the time had come for the revealing of the mystery. It is, until a mystery is revealed, all we have is a linear application, a domestic application. So marriage, in all of the history of marriage, was understood in various ways and interpreted in various ways according to what prevailed in society. At the time of Jesus, for example, what prevailed in Jewish society was that the woman was the property of the man. Um, he paid a bride price to the woman's, husband, the woman's father a dowry and she, in that transaction, she became his property. Now he couldn't, uh, the father couldn't ask for her back because the transaction had been completed. She was first the property of her father and then she became subsequently by the transaction of marriage, the property of the husband. 
Later on, societies would take on the pattern of mutuality of exchanges, where the father of the bride would give a dowry uh, to the husband, or the, the parents of the husband, or gifts anyway, and vice versa. Uh, the, the, the husband would give a dowry to the parents of, of the bride, and the, the bride might in fact be given a portion of that dowry, as is the case with the woman who had uh, uh, ten coins. One was lost, and she appreciated a 10% or she experienced a 10% depreciation in her, uh, in her value. That's one of the reasons why coins in the ancient world as part of a dowry of exchange were typically sewed onto the garment of the wife because if the husband wrote her a writing of divorce, put her out, the only thing she was allowed to take were her clothing, her clothes. So if she had the money sewed onto her clothes, um, then she could take the money with her. Now, that, that's an aside. But going back into the central theme of in the beginning, what was the original intent? In the beginning, God's intent was that marriage should show the relationship between Christ and the church. Now, I want, we have read portions of Ephesians, but I want to read more of it, beginning with, with the principle submit one to another in the fear of the Lord not submitting to one another. Now, it's impossible for it to mean submitting one to another, or rather it's impossible for it to mean submit to one another. This does not mean, cannot mean, contextually, it cannot mean mutual submission. That's an appeal to the secular understanding because people understand that in the present world, equality is the goal and that a woman should not be viewed as unequal to a man. So the notion of the woman submitting to a man has been tweaked by this mistranslation of submitting one uh, submitting to one another. But when we do that, we miss the whole point of the original intent. By, by exalting equality between male and female as an attempt to restructure society that use the scripture as the basis for the oppression of women. We've done violence to both women and the scriptures. When we made submission uh, an equal thing, 
we lost the glory of God's intention in the mystery and and we separated ourselves from the power, the authority of God that was designed to sustain mankind, male and female, in creation. I I am disgusted with theologians, church leaders from the highest levels of church leading authorities to the lowest that distort the scriptures in order to be current in society. When we do that, we have nothing to offer to society and in fact when we do that, society has more to offer to us than we do to offer to it. We are secularizing the church and when we do that, there's nothing that is respectable or honorable about the church. I watch these theologians who stumble over themselves trying to convince the world that we're more like the world than than the world itself. No, we are to submit one or to submit to another because the power of submission is this, it's a model of Christ and the church in which the one under authority has all of the authority of the one who is over them when they're acting within the scope of the authority that has been given to them. So, by contrast, and I'll obviously be developing this principle in the next next, uh, uh, broadcast, I want to talk about the power of submission. Why? Keep in mind this is not, it doesn't begin and end with humans, it begins with what God wishes to do in regards to humans because ultimately the intent of God is to invite humans to submit to the order by which His authority flows from the throne of God into human society but specifically into human society that has been called out of human society and constituted as the body of Christ. This does not work for the world, this is not the form that the world has or can see or can endure. This doesn't work for the world. The world is based in competition. Equality is what we hope to have as the high watermark of human society when we inherently infer that society is competitive. The alternative is the celebration of uniqueness where every joint supplies the thing that the joint was designed to supply. God designed everybody to function in a unique fashion but only within the context of the body of Christ, not just in society as a whole. So society's best effort is to have equality 
And I'm not against equality considering the history of the abuse of women, minorities, and any and all disenfranchised people. In a godless society, the best we could hope for is, legal, is uh, equality before the administration of law and equality in social uh, uh, opportunities. That's the best we can hope for. But that's not the best that's available. What is available is the body of Christ. And in that, the entire power of God is available through submission. That's what I want to go on with when we, when we continue. And I want to show you there's no possible way that this scripture could have been speaking about mutual submission. One is in authority, another is under authority, and the one who is in authority rules for the benefit of the one who is under authority. The one who is under authority by obedience has all of the power and the authority of the one over them. That's where I want to go. Continue with me as we, as we reach into these deeper things. I'm Sam Solon and we'll talk soon. Bye-bye.